I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome to The Book Pod with Corrie Perkin, the fortnightly podcast that brings readers and writers together. Today we acknowledge the traditional owners of the Boon Wurrung Nation where this podcast is produced and pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Hello to all our podcast friends and welcome to today's episode of The Book Pod. A few weeks ago I had the pleasure of hosting a webinar with Hannah Kent, the award-winning South Australian writer whose debut novel, Burial Rights, arrived like a meteor in 2013 and whose recent novel, Devotion, confirms her place as one of Australia's major literary talents. Devotion is a beautiful story of friendship, love and the ties that bind us. It is the winner of Booktopia's Favourite Australian Book Award for 2021 and has just been shortlisted for the Indie Book Awards for Fiction, the winner of which will be announced in June. Devotion begins in a 19th century Prussian village where a group of Lutheran worshippers are being persecuted by the Emperor Franz Joseph. A long sea voyage to Australia forms the meeting middle part of this book before our exiled migrant settler characters arrive in South Australia and establish their small community in what is now the Adelaide Hills region. As The Guardian wrote in its review last year, Devotion, quote, is a love story ardent and wholesome and it drapes its readers in lush historical detail. Fans will find a lot to savour. And so have we. The book clubs we run read Devotion over the summer break and the discussions that followed were spirited and intense. This book certainly packs a punch and throws forward many interesting issues for book clubs and readers generally to consider. I hope you enjoy my discussion with Hannah Kent. I loved meeting her again, and I hope you enjoy Devotion. Hannah, it's great to see you. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's so exciting to join you here. Oh, it's wonderful. Hannah, we're here, of course, for Devotion, but to ask you lots of other questions about what's been happening in the last couple of years since we last saw you. This, of course, is my much-beloved treasured reading copy that arrived in the mail probably about August last year, and I just couldn't wait to rip into it. Um, it probably a bit more well-worn because I've read it now about three times. Hannah, it arrived in our stores late October last year. There was great excitement, particularly 
among Melbourne bookshops, which were just emerging from another, yet another extended two-month lockdown. So everybody was very excited that they had a book of yours to sell. And readers were excited. Since your remarkable debut novel, Burial Rights, in 2013, and then the success of The Good People a couple of years later, you've built up such a huge and loyal fan club. Congratulations on the achievements of devotion so far. It is in the top five of the Australian bestsellers list Uh, It has been pretty much since its release, actually. It has harnessed extensive praise from the critics and readers alike. It's been shortlisted for the Indie Novel of the Year. It was Booktopia's Book of the Year in 2021 and, indeed, our own Book of the Year here. And beautiful hardcover edition this, this month arrived in the UK bookstores. So all your fans in Britain are now reading their way through the story of Anna and Thea. Thank you so much. That's so lovely. And I didn't know that about sales. So thank you for sharing that. I like to sort of be kept in the dark because it just is like another world to me. But that's really lovely to hear that people are enjoying it. They're loving it. And I can honestly say firsthand evidence that there are book clubs around Australia who are, have been ploughing through and, and are still reading and intend to read your book over the next few months. Before we discuss devotion, Hannah, I just wanted to ask how the past couple of years have been for you. Last time we met, it was 2016 at the bookshop. You were not married. There were no children. And you and your partner, uh, Heidi, were living in Melbourne. Now you and your wife are the parents of two small children. You've moved back to South Australia and you have the new novel. So tell me what's been, <laughs> tell me what's been happening. You basically you summarised it really well. Um, yeah, so it's been five years, no, seven years now since The, the Good People came out, um, five years since Between, between Books. And um, 2017 was a big year. That was the year I started working on devotion. And then very fortunately um, we, we, we decided to have children. I became pregnant, but that was also the year of the same-sex plebiscite. And we decided to get married, uh, actually, on the day that Australia said yes. And then um, the following year, we were married. By that stage, we'd had a little girl. I mean, it's, I mean, no, 2019, we were married, had a little girl in between. And now we have a little boy as well. And basically, in between these big life events, which very fortunately, we managed to sort of make happen. Um, my son was born just actually as we went into our first lockdown. He's a real COVID baby. I was writing. Uh, I was writing Devotion and I was also writing a film script, which is currently being shot um, in, in Victoria and soon to be in the in SA, uh, a new uh, psychological horror film called Run, Run, Rabbit, Run. So really it's, um, I feel in many ways that there's been lots of things happening, but also that I really just haven't left my house in a very, very long time. Um, but yeah, work and babies, you basically hit the nail on the head. So moving back to your home area in South Australia in the Adelaide Hills, was that a, an easy decision to make to leave Melbourne or uh, a difficult one? And how's it been during the, during the actual sort of lockdown, the two-year period? Uh, it was a pretty easy decision. I think um, I never necessarily intended to remain in Melbourne. I love Melbourne and gosh, I miss it, especially now. Can't wait to return um, for a visit. But, you know, my family, including my sister, who I'm, I'm very close to, they all still live in South Australia. And it was, um, we didn't necessarily intend to move back to the Adelaide Hills, which is very specifically the place where I grew up, but in just one of those, you know, uh, moments of, um, serendipity or synchronicity we found a lovely place to live uh, up here but it's great actually I'm, I'm enjoying the slower lifestyle got a wonderful veggie garden going and um, you know things are quite quiet which ended up being sort of what we wanted as um, you know as COVID took over and everything got shut down 
And um, yeah, like I said, really the various lockdowns and the spread of the pandemic, I mean, we were in a bubble anyway. I, I, I think they made the announcement that hospitals weren't allowing guests the day before I had my son. So, you know, we were, we were stuck at home doing not very much anyway, but yeah, we've, we've started to really feel it, especially being separated from loved ones and friends in Melbourne. Yeah. Hannah, this novel is, none of us should be surprised because you are an extraordinary storyteller with a, a vast imagination, but such creativity, so many ideas in all of your three novels. The first two, of course, were based on factual events, but even so, there's just a there's just um, a, a surprise almost at every turn of the page, and it's one of the many things I love about your novels. What prompted the idea of devotion? We've all read, I think, uh, a few interviews that you've done. You've talked about how novels about gay relationships these days are now not uncommon, but uh, but when you were growing up and, you know, me several years before you, there was just nothing available. And uh, and I read somewhere that you originally thought this idea might be a story of a friendship between two mm. girls, and, and I wondered what triggered the, the, the idea of the romance. It's a good question. Yeah, I was, um, it's interesting because I think this book has been a reaction to my others in the way that The Good People was never a reaction to burial rights. Um, when I started thinking about what I wanted to write next, I knew that I didn't want to do the same thing again, which was really finding a true crime event from history and, and researching it with you know, the nth degree and then sort of trying to subvert that narrative whilst also remaining true to it. I didn't want to write about another murdering woman um, because I felt that I would be painting myself into a corner as a novelist and... I wanted to try something different. And for me, so much of the joy of writing comes down to practice. It's always about the writing itself. That's why I do it. I mean, it's wonderful to have books published. It's amazing to have readers and I'm so grateful for it. But I think to write a book, it always has to come back down to the, you know, the joy of the act itself. And I, the, one of the reasons I love writing is because I find it difficult. And I really wanted to challenge myself with my third novel. And so I thought, well, I don't want to write about a criminal woman from history. I was also ready to move into lighter territory, not necessarily in the sense that it was, you know, bubbly or frivolous, but I wanted to move away from very, you know, grim landscapes, grim events. Um, I was ready to celebrate something, I think. And initially when I was sort of thinking about where I wanted to set the novel and what sort of things I wanted to explore, I was really considering friendship. And initially I thought I'm going to write a book about two women whose friendship is the most sustaining, meaningful relationship in their lives. And sort of around the same time that I was deciding that, I had started thinking and reading a lot about the immigration of Prussian Germans or Prussian Lutherans to uh, South Australia shortly after the passing of the South Australian Act. It was something that growing up in, in the Adelaide Hills on Paramount Country, um, near villages like Harndorf, which is still a massive tourist destination, and the Barossa, I was always really aware of sort of the inherited, um, I guess, of, of the cultural legacy of these German immigrants. But when I moved to Melbourne and I tried using words like Metwurst and Fritz and Delicatessen, you know, I didn't know what a milk bar was, I started realising that not many people were familiar with this part of our colonial history. And I was, um, so I was thinking about this, I was thinking about maybe I was ready to write about the Australian landscape, which is something that is very dear to me. And perhaps for that reason, it was too close. I didn't want to write about it yet. 
And then all of these sort of interests were, I mean, I don't have a, a very strong plan when I sit down to write. I sort of move towards the things that are compelling me or just kind of occupy my mind. And then, as I said earlier, it was 2017 and we had the plebiscite on same-sex marriage. And, I mean, and that was such a difficult year, um, even though I ended, you know, in changes to um, to legislation, it was still really difficult. Uh, Really, there was a lot of strain and pressure on the queer community in South Australia. Well, right, we we forget that, don't we? We forget that uh, there was so much anger and anguish and sadness and fear and um, and hope. It was Mm -hmm. just from all aspects, all parts of the community, I think, were, were, were... involved in this issue yeah well it's just it was just kind of an extraordinarily unnecessary thing to happen I think uh I mean you know and I won't go into the you know too much of the political stuff surrounding it because we know what's happened since and it, I don't think it bears to dwell uh in that space but I mean we were receiving here we are we just bought our first house we were incredibly excited about the prospect of starting a life I was pregnant and we're getting pamphlets in the mail saying that you know me and my would-be wife are all sorts of awful things. And as much as you, I think, as a natural process of growing up as a queer person, come to accept yourself and you build resilience and tolerance, I mean, it has still has an effect. It's still difficult because you're fighting against it. And um, I think it was that and it was my, my own frustration and my own anger that made me think, I don't want to write about friendship. Why, why should I write about friendship? There's a lot that has been said about it. What don't we have as a community? And there is still a, there's still very few narratives of positive representation of queer love. I mean, there are many more now, especially contemporary novels, but as a historical novelist, I mean, what are there? What, what novels exist within a historical context? We have very sort of despondent titles like The Well of Loneliness or with things start to get better with The Price of Salt and the Patricia Highsmith or Carol as it's also been published as. Sarah Waters has some fantastic sort of queer romps, but I really wanted to see then if I could change that meaningful friendship into a meaningful relationship whilst retaining what I then decided to be the the landscape and the backdrop of this very pious old Lutheran German communities emigrating. And therein I thought, well, that seems like an impossible task. And once I realised how challenging it would be, I couldn't not do it. Um, so that was really the, the point where devotion became devotion. Before that, it was just me amassing these disparate ideas. And it wasn't until I really tapped into my own frustration at that lack of, of narrative and my desire and my realisation too that I was in a position to contribute a story and to contribute towards representation that I, yeah, that I made my mind up. Hannah, I do want to ask you a bit more about the writing about the Australian bush and how you found the, that writing about the landscape uh, in a moment. But I, I want to get back to the, the the sort of the very beginning, and we know that uh, we know from burial rights and the good people that uh, research uh, and and sort of delving into a time that we are unfamiliar with here in Australia has been very important to you and it intrigues you, and. This for 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 the rest of Australia who may not be familiar with South Australia's very rich and important uh, German and Prussian connection. Can you just tell us a little bit about the, the how you actually researched the story of Hannah Nussbaum, the teenage girl living in nineteenth century Prussia in this small Lutheran community, 
that increasingly is being persecuted by an emperor who wants not all of these different strands of Protestantism, but like so many emperors and kings, wants, wants to kind of control the masses by controlling religion. Um, how you kind of research that and what was involved? Mm. So even though with this book I ended up moving away from that sort of methodology or that, I guess, the ethical framework I had set for myself in terms of representing the past on the page with my other two books it was still research is was still crucial to this to this book in so many ways one because I think even if you're creating characters and they're not based on the dead I think there is still you know a responsibility to portraying the past and I think writers I mean I feel I shouldn't really speak for others I feel a responsibility towards portraying certain aspects of the way in which people used to live, what they believed, their cultural practices with, with reverence that I think you can demonstrate through research. The other reason is that I also feel that research um, contributes so much to, I guess, the creative inspiration behind a novel. I, I tend not to sort of map out the plot of a book and then go and research to fill in the gaps. I like just to read as widely as possible from a variety of different texts and sources and then I'll come across these amazing little stories or I'll get ideas for characters and I keep a notebook and I tend to write it all down there. And then my research becomes a little bit more finely focused as characters come to life. And eventually I get to the point where I feel that I know enough and I can write out of my familiarity or saturation from that time period and, and leave the books behind. And hopefully then only the relevant information will make its way into the book. In, in terms of what I what sources I turned to, they were just as varied as my previous two novels. But probably the more significant ones was I spent a lot of time reading about the food histories of the Barossa Valley and the viticulture there. And I chose people who wrote in a very about these things in a very expansive way with lots of anecdotal stories, lots of local histories brought in. I actually had, with my previous two novels, there was an absolute it was difficult to find information. There was a dearth of information available specifically about the people I had chosen to write about. With this novel, there is so much available about these communities and these congregations who, as you said, fled Prussia in the 1830s and 40s um, because they were being persecuted under the rule of King Frederick William III, who had decided to unify the Protestant churches within Prussia and increasingly over the years had started to persecute those who refused to join to the Union Church by placing them in prison, by fining them to the point of, you know, absolute poverty, to imprisoning the pastors and persecuting them. And so I, I read a lot of local letters, mainly from the perspective of people who did eventually emigrate and what they remembered about their time in Prussia and then their first impressions of, of South Australia. I read, like I said, a lot of food histories which touched into the wider history about it. I really liked those because they privileged a lot of domestic information which sometimes can be completely absent in other sources because it's often women-centred or people think that it's not significant enough to contribute to sort of a dominant narrative. I also found the most incredible journals written by a captain who ended up bringing about 200 Prussian immigrants over to South Australia. And um, the extraordinary thing about these journals is I started reading them because I thought, well, you know, I've never been on a three-mastered ship. I don't know what it would be like to spend six months on such a place. You know, what You know, what did they eat? What did they do? And I started reading these very dry, maritime journals just to get, you know, little mentions of the weather or rations. And then right at the end of the journals, 
this captain sort of stopped and said, everything that I've shared about the immigrants, I actually haven't been entirely truthful. And then he includes essentially a catalogue of conflicts and problems and, and characterizations of these immigrants because some of these conflicts which had arisen due to conditions on the boat were ongoing and he thought he would have to testify in court. And that was the resource that when I read it, suddenly these communities that I'd been reading about in these very vague sort of hagiographic terms came alive and I saw individual faces and there was this real sort of human experience to it, you know, this sense of not everything going so well or people still being petty despite their, you know, avowals to God and their position as elders in the church. And that was the point where the, I guess, the broader cast of characters in this book really, I drew so heavily from that, from those, from those journals. Um, that was truly such a wonderful thing. But, I mean, I could go on and on about the various resources I found useful. I, re I researched for quite a long time and the same was true. Did you, did you go to that part of Europe? I didn't actually because by the time that I was fine focusing on those elements of the story, we were in a pandemic and I wasn't able to travel. So I spent a lot of time on Google Earth. <laughs> You're going to have to make the journey. <laughs> I'd love to. I'm terrified to because imagine if I get there and it's completely incorrect. But, you know, hopefully, hopefully I've done my work. You, you do give us a very strong sense of the landscape over there, as you do here as well. Tell me about um, about Hannah and, uh, and Thea as characters, but particularly Hannah because she's our narrator. With Hannah, she's, she's such a beautiful character of, of, of nature, I feel, and she must have been a curious child. I get the feeling that she, because she, she's so intuitive, she has heightened emotional intelligence and is very passionate in her responses, not only her love for Thea but as a human being, that perhaps she was a bit of an oddity in that group of quite um, austere, uh, emotionally austere and, and, and quiet um, Lutherans. What did you want her to be? What do you think she is? And, 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 and how do you see Thea as a companion, compare and contrast or a similar spirit or how do they both fit in? One of the things that became apparent to me quite early on in the research process was the abundance of information available. And I realised at that stage I was hoping to find um, a story of two women who were close friends that perhaps then I could turn into a queer story or I was hoping and I knew I wouldn't find it and of course I didn't any kind of documentation regarding a same-sex relationship. What I realised as I was reading you know these myriad family histories and these letters and these diary entries was that there was so much information and there was so much awareness in contemporary communities in South Australia about these people and about the facts in these sources that to stay true to the known record or to use real people's names I was absolutely going to annoy someone and I was going to get a lot of angry emails saying you know my great grandfather great great grandfather Johan never said this and he married you know the I was going to I was going to annoy people and so I made the very kind of freeing decision to only use my research as kind of a, as a as a as a suggestion and to invent my characters and by that stage I as soon as I decided I was going to invent my characters Hannah and Tia materialized they were there from the start and they didn't really change over the drafting process. I always had a very strong, the writer, the American writer, Ron Rash, who is a wonderful short story writer and also a novelist, I interviewed him once and he spoke about how every story starts with this sort of glimpse, this sort of tiny vision. And then as he thinks about it, you know, it's like the camera widens and he starts to see the whole sort of aspect of the story or what's happening. And something similar happened with me with this. I had this, this vision of a very, you know, blonde young woman in a, 
in a field in in an agricultural setting with the sun coming down. It was Australian light and she was being observed by someone who loved her very deeply. And as soon as I had that, I sat down and I wrote what is now, I think, the first paragraph in the book. And that paragraph became, I guess, like a, a cornerstone for the novel. It was also a touchstone in terms of voice and in terms of who Hannah was. And as soon as I wrote it down, I got the sense that Hannah would be a narrator, that the book would be written in first person, and that here was a girl who had been raised in a very religious family with a father as an elder, a mother who embodied all the virtues upheld and honoured by this congregation, and yet she herself felt, felt completely different and was essentially struggling to become a woman in the way that women were only allowed to be within that community. And with the voice and the very lyrical nature of it came this sense of a deep musicality that wasn't just about her own perhaps talent for music, although I wanted to write that in, but also as a, as a key for the ways in which she engaged with nature. And I always saw Hannah as being someone who not only is able to access the divine through the, the church that she belongs to, um, but also through the natural world and who sees herself as not separate to it, but as absolutely connected to it. And then Taya really was created, I guess, in, in reaction to Hannah's sense of herself being different. I wanted to, I knew I wanted to write a love story that would be about total acceptance, total recognition to the point that it seemed outside of time, that these were two people who absolutely saw one another in in all their faults and in all their talents and in all their hopes and aspirations. And I thought by having that kind of, by making the love as pure and as, as vulnerable and as raw as possible, I could perhaps elevate it out of those narratives that we have received from the past, which inevitably are grounded in, in shame or repression or betrayal. And so those two characters and their love that they have for one another really rose out of that desire to sort of, you know, place love on a pedestal, I suppose, but also to, to allow their love and their relationship to also explore other, you know, the other divinities that we might experience within life. You're listening to The Book Pod, an audio community that brings writers and readers together. When Taya arrives and she does look quite ghost-like and you just get the, the this, she's just so clearly in my head, this beautiful sort of ethereal blonde person. And I kept thinking in the first half of the book, what are you intending to do here? <laughs> How's this love <laughs> going to play out? Because in the conservative, God-fearing Lutheran community, and then they start travelling across the world to establish this new settlement, I kept thinking, oh, this is not going to end well at all because, of course, they won't accept this. Maybe this is a gay relationship that's doomed kind of story. Maybe this is uh, they they take flight. And I, I thought, oh, it would be wonderful if there was an Indigenous tribe who would take them or, or another community. Well, of course, there was nobody in South Australia, really. I don't know where I was thinking it was going, but I was willing it to, to have some sort of happy ending, I suppose, which for me I was incredibly satisfied in that regard. But midway through, you kill off your narrator. <laughs> now, this is the gutsiest thing, you know, in, in writing that you can actually do. <laughs> so so was, did that come suddenly or was that always intended? It wasn't always intended. A fright? Did you give yourself a fright when you wrote those words? No, I didn't give myself a fright. 
uh, it didn't come at the beginning. What I had decided that it was going to be a love story between these two characters and I understood who they would be would develop into and uh, with this book because um, the writing of it was so fragmented by having young children and by sleep deprivation my routine was completely off and I was sort of just writing where I could uh, in a very non-linear way and I also allowed myself I guess the indulgence of uh, rather than sitting down and, and, and plotting out what was going to happen of just trying things out of writing material I knew wouldn't make into the book and I was writing all these scenes testing out the idea of this love within this community and I couldn't avoid I couldn't avoid uh, heartbreak, essentially. I couldn't avoid either the idea of the characters or one of the characters not recognising their feelings for what they are, so sort of caught up in their own ignorance, uh, you know, not without access to a vocabulary to speak to the nature of their love. Um, I couldn't escape the idea that they would be caught eventually or that in order to leave an oppressive society they would essentially have to leave and, and and isolate themselves and and exist in you know who knows I mean it wasn't going to work it would be very difficult to survive I didn't actually entertain the idea of them you know living with the paramount and of course the paramount people would you know dealing with a lot at the same time it probably would have been a very different novel had that happened and then I was thinking about the journey over on the boat and the actual journey which was described in those in Captain Hahn's journals and I, uh, there was uh, there many people who, who died. And one of the reasons they were thought to die initially was because there was a very inept doctor on board who was trying to do things like um, he thought nothing of the people. He called them peasants. He called them dogs. He had a very classist attitudes towards these people. And he, well, he was using them as guinea pigs, essentially. He wanted to test a smallpox, a live smallpox, smallpox vaccine on board. He was accused of having ground up broken glass and, and giving them to children in medicine who later passed away. And I was thinking about the deaths which occurred on the ship and it occurred to me that maybe one of these characters could die. And then I was thinking, well, one way to elevate that love story as I was talking about and one way for my characters to become absolutely clear-eyed about the way that they feel, to, to recognise it and to potentially act on it would be to separate one to separate them out from using death using a death from the very narrow parameters that are set in place because of you know the historical context so by killing a character and then i decided it could it should be the narrator i could essentially destroy all the limitations that would otherwise come by keeping her within that society within life hedged in by ideological biases and received notions of of love and all of that sort of stuff. I could essentially completely dislocate, I guess, her, dislocate her and then have her right from that perspective of being an outsider, but that very freeing place where she is no longer facing consequence. She's no longer facing the prospect of punishment. She's no longer facing shame. You know, the worst possible thing has happened to her and she is free, therefore, to remain devoted to the love of her life and, you know, the rest of what happens in the second half of the book then flowed on very easily from there. And once I decided this, I knew on a very gut level that it was the right thing to do. I was also scared because I knew it would be the equivalent of basically taking my reader for a walk and then pushing them off a cliff. And it would it would come down to a lot of reader trust. And some readers have written to me and said, no, I couldn't do it. How dare you? You know, they're, they're furious and I completely appreciate that. But there are lots of people who have stayed with the book and who I think have come to an understanding that it was the only way it could be written. And the other reason why I wanted to do that with Hannah is because 
it allowed me to separate her from the bias and the probably racism and the colonial mindset of those immigrants and give her essentially a modern day comprehension of the consequences of colonization. And this was one of the big things in, in coming to write this book that I was really worried about because I was never going to write from the perspective of an indigenous or first nations character. Um, that's not my voice to appropriate. That's not my culture to appropriate. That's not my space to take up. So I knew that the alternative would be to write from the perspective of a white settler, a white colonizer. Um, and I would have to honour their particular mindset that they had from that time. And I had no desire to do that. I mean, what story could I tell? I mean, what, who does that serve? It's not something I wanted to do. So once I thought, no, 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 if, I, if she's dead, she's suddenly not of that time, you know. She gets pushed out into a state of timelessness and invisibility where she's free to form her own judgments and experience things that would never be available to her had she continued living. And it was one of those things of, this is this is what has to happen. You know, it was something I understood on a on a you know on a body level, and then of course there were all these other wonderfully exciting creative pathways where I could I could take that and I could take her after her death, and that was probably one of the the most joyous parts of writing this book was allowing myself to kind of move off into new territory as a writer. Your imagination is huge in that back half of the novel and it's so funny because in the book clubs there have been discussions along the lines of, well, you know, look, the ghost the ghost wouldn't have done that and we've gone, but how do you know? <laughs> <laughs> this is the thing, where's right? The book, where's the book that says how you, you know, how, how a ghost feels or responds or it was just, um, it was it was breathtaking. But Again, and I don't want to give anything away, but the last sort of 50 pages, you, you talk about Hannah being uh, a, a kind of an outsider. She mm. is absolutely an insider in those last mm. in that, that last part of the book. And it, it's some of the most beautiful love writing and beyond romance, you know, just pure love, love between couples, love between parents and losing a child, love between Hannah and Taya, love for a new baby. I mean, it's just, it just, it's brimful of, of the joy of love. And and I and that's what I meant before when I kind of I, I ended the book on a bit of a high. Hannah, you said in an interview last year that it took you some time actually to get the courage to write about your home country. And I wondered. Before we address how you did this, and you talked briefly about um, your feeling about going into the First Nations space, but whether you would do us the honour of reading a little bit from your devotion. Yeah, sure. I, uh, I might read a section from when this, this community arrives in South Australia and they've received word that they are allowed to builds a village on uh, what is the paramount country up in the Adelaide and the Mount Lofty Ranges. And this is, this is the impression uh, that Hannah forms of this country. The sound of this country is one long sustained note that does not end. It is a humming that holds all the other music of this place in harmony. Every other sound is threaded upon it. It was at the port that I began to curate new litanies. Between the bullock drivers that rumbled in from Adelaide the sailors, the merchants, the English come in search of labourers. I found words given to the music I heard against the constant run of the wind amongst the rushes and sand dunes. She oak for the tree with long scaled needles whistling the wind in a way that made my skin lift. Magpie lark for the two shriek calling peep and changing hours. 
salt paper bark for the crooked trees growing wooded cut fruit, mangrove, wattle, saltbush. In the months that came afterwards, I learned new words as the congregation did, as they crossed the dusty ticking plains of Adelaide. I placed them next to one another upon the deeper vibration of this country. Galah, cockatoo, lorikeet, kangaroo, wallaby, possum, emu, goanna, quoll. Now, years later, sitting on the lip of this valley, I can make prayer beads of the trees that crown me, the small living things glimpsed if I am still and silent, red gum, blue gum, quandong, stringy bark, and the birds ever here, ever singing, a liturgy to govern the hours towards gods of cry and shriek and call, kookaburra, magpie, shrike, thrush, wagtail, currawong, crow, bubuk. Scripture may, may no longer roll off my tongue in smooth certainty, but my mouth is still full of spirit, holy writ of living things, each one a prayer against the teeth. Nature had always been my whetstone, had always made me keener, and after the congregation reached the foothills, I felt myself sharpened to life. The landscape on the ascent to the ranges was unlike anything I had ever seen before. I had thought the pine forests back in, back in K a place of divinity, but this country was infinitely more sovereign. Each morning, while it was yet dark, the birds filled the air with singing so that the sun, when it rose, brought light at symphony. The birds were everywhere, hosts of raucous angels, black-bodied, yellow-topped messengers of shrieking delight, soot-streaked coral masters, feather-fat kookaburras suddenly, alarmingly proselytizing to the dawn. Even the trees grew in such a way as to welcome the sun to the world. In Prussia, canopies were dense and thick. Forest floors were deeply shadowed. Here was a place of lightness. Leaves dappled thin and shiny, fluttered pink, grey, green. I crushed them in my palm and smelled medicine, healing. Hot still days dropped branches, all bone crack and brought the sounds of bees. Sometimes I smelled honey warming the air. Animals were muscled fur and liquid eyes or scaly thicknesses, tongues darting. All of it, trees and possums and kangaroos and bright beads of ant circling trunks, veered from stillness to flashing movement in an instant. There was energy here, rough softness. Sometimes it rained and when it stopped, the air was perfume, a clean scent of wet leaf and damp sweetness. I wanted to drink that washed summer air. I imagined it tasted of reprieve. That is just beautiful, Hannah. That is absolutely beautiful. Why have you waited so long? Why did you hear? <laughs> so tell me your thoughts about writing about your homeland. Yeah, I think you write the books that you're ready to write. And I think that it has it has perhaps taken this long for me to feel ready to write about something about which I'm deeply familiar. You know, I was raised in the Adelaide Hills. I had a very wonderful nature-filled childhood, but I was anxious for a long time as a writer about writing things that were familiar to me. I never really took the advice to write what you know. For me, writing has always come from what I don't know. And that's true of, you know, countries and, and new places, but also of, of history, what isn't in history. These are the things which have always sort of interested me. And so I, I was a bit anxious coming to write this book once I decided that I was going to write about Australia because I had used my sense of wonder which came from my complete lack of familiarity with Iceland and then Ireland to really find a way to write about those landscapes. With Iceland, you know, it's funny, it's like this is what travel does, right? When you go to a new place, I mean, if we can remember what travel is, 
you go to a new place and time slows down, time has a different pace because you're suddenly assaulted by all this novelty, you know, and you take in the world around you in a way that sometimes I think we can struggle to when we're at home. And I, I was concerned that I wouldn't be able to find that same sense of wonder that I could then write out of to try and distill all the qualities of a landscape to the page. I knew I loved it. I knew that I loved the Australian landscape deeply, um, but that only made me more anxious because I wanted to honour it. What I ended up doing was, I, you know, in the, those that place of play and those early stages of drafting things down was to just try to really lean into that love instead of that lack of familiarity uh, to try and, you know, I guess focus on the things which also perhaps as a child I loved the most. I think I really lent on that child sense of wonder that I experienced growing up in this place when I felt, you know, that time in my life when I felt very connected to the landscape and felt completely, you know, you know that, that it was that we were the same entity, you know, as children do. Um, and so a lot of, I guess, my memories of being out in the hills and in the ranges of the ways in which me and my sister would play in the paddocks and be around the dam and things like that, I think that's what seemed to loom large when I was writing about it. And it was, um, I guess, the way I found my way back into language as a means of, yeah, that distillation. But, yeah, it wasn't something that I did lightly um, because it always as much as I wanted to write about the landscape I also knew that I was doing so within a context of colonization and that was something I really had to get my head around in terms of the sorts of views that I would be representing in this book and I wanted to make sure that I um, I could essentially you know write write a, no a modern novel even though it had a historical timeline um, and yeah. that was yeah, that was sorted by having a doing what I did to Hannah. We, uh, before Christmas in November, we had Kate Grenville as, uh, as, our, as our guest, our webinar guest, and we talked about uh, A Roommate of Leaves, <clears throat> which is her most excellent novel on um, the story, the fictional account of Elizabeth MacArthur's journey out to Australia with her husband, John, and then, of course, those first few years as part of the Second Fleet Settlement. And she writes also beautifully about the Australian bush, as you would know, and her perspective is very much the newcomer coming to this land. What I loved about your Hannah is that she is the newcomer at the beginning and so are the characters who are part of this new community. But then as the years pass and just that passage that you read there, Hannah talks about Australia like you, like those of us who have grown up in Australia. It's our breath. It's our. It's we've grown up with it. The crackling of the leaves, the you know, the smell of gums, a eucalypts after rain. All of that stuff is just in our psyche. And then I guess for visitors tonight who have come to Australia from another country, um, it's probably the wonderment of discovering it. But in the one novel, you've captured both the um, the the observations of the of the new person, the newcomer, and and then the familiarity of somebody who deeply loves the continent. It's very clever. Oh, that's very kind of you to say. I think one thing that I really did, and this is you know part and parcel of the sort of the weird way that I do research, is I looked at a lot of paintings and drawings that had been done of the landscape very shortly after the arrival of the British. Um, and the way that that transformed. And I always remember I had this great art teacher in high school and he did exactly this. He showed us paintings and he said, look, this is supposed to be the Australian bush. And we're like, why, are, why do all the trees look like oak trees and pines? And he says, because they just lacked the ability to sort of 
to, to accurately represent that. And then he showed us various slides where you see slowly that ability to understand the Australian landscape come through. And so, I, you know, you leaned on little experiences and memories like that in trying to do it. But that's very kind of you to, to say so. And, oh, no, know, not at all. Um, um, Hannah, um, we've had a couple of questions and there have been a couple of questions and they've, they've both been um, most eloquently put and respectfully put, the questions about your faith or your spirituality of your own. Can you share uh, your faith story? Yeah, I was really anxious in, I guess I gave a lot of thought to the way in which I would represent religion and faith in this book because I, I think, you know, for good reason, there's a lot of narratives out there. I mean, there's various um you know, organisations of, of religious faith who have, have done incredibly detrimental and go on to do and still do incredibly detrimental things to the LGBTQA plus community. Um, but I was anxious not to make this a story of us and them. And I wanted to rather, I guess the only way in which I'm, I wanted to, you know, go out and disagree with the church is by saying, look, I think there are, essentially I wanted to show that I think that there are many ways to God and that there are many things to, many ways to the divine and that then not one is greater or lesser than the others. And I think that is why, you know, the book is titled Devotion, is that there are many things in, that we can, many higher powers that we might surrender to um, in order to give our lives meaning. Um, and fulfillment and this is this is probably the closest representation of my own spiritual beliefs it's worth saying that I did go to church of my own volition uh, I wasn't raised in a religious family I started going when I was about 13 and I went for about three or four years and um, and I you know I had many wonderful experiences within that church I met many people who I felt really embodied the things which I feel lie at the core of Christianity but it was those, you know, it was a certain amount of black and white thinking and attitudes towards queer people, um, towards people of other faiths that eventually caused me to leave the church, not in any sort of grand, you know, disavowal, just stopped going. But I'm, I'm deeply interested in matters of spirituality in the same way that I'm interested in things that are mysterious um, and things like love that we cannot see, we cannot prove the existence of love other than we feel it and we know it to be true. Um, and I think I'm also interested in faith and not for what it is itself, but for what it says about the faithful and the hopes and the fears and, and the desires that we have. I think, um, I think as a novelist, you know, it always comes back to people, what fascinates you about, you know, the human experience and, and faith and how people relate to faith says so much about that um, in the same way that, you know, the supernatural does. It's not, it doesn't actually matter whether or not the ghosts are real or not. It's the people's attitudes towards the ghost. It's always about the person running from the ghost than the ghost itself. I don't know if that really answers those questions in any kind of detail, but in to say I wanted to be respectful of the various faith systems that are, that are portrayed, you know, and that are included in the book. But that it was, yeah, it was always my intention to show that there are perhaps many roads to spiritual fulfilment. There was a bit of uh, anguish amongst a couple of the book clubbers over our recent discussion of this book about how um, <laughs> how Hannah was robbed because she'd been brought up to believe in this, you know, you'll you'll, yeah. you'll arrive at the pearly gates kind of scenario, and of course 
she's floating around the Australian bush in the first instance picking seaweed and shells out of her ears and her nose and everything. But Pia, one of our gang, asks the most interesting question here, Hannah. She says, when Hannah dies, there is no heaven, God or Jesus awaiting her at all. She had a very fundamentalist Christian upbringing with no exposure to any other belief system. In your view, how did she come to terms with this? I wanted to show the grieving process that comes when you leave religion, whether it's you're forced out of, uh, you know, a religious congregation or religion or, or, or um, a faith practice or whether you do a so of your own accord. And I actually read um, a lot about people who had left closed religious communities, um, whether they were pushed out or whether they decided to, some of whom were gay. And many of them described that irrespective of their attitudes towards you know, the institution or the community, there was always a great sense of loss and a need to sort of reform an identity. And I wanted to capture that grief because it's never that Hannah is there when she's in, in her living years thinking, I disagree with the church. You know, she has a deep love of God and she has a deep faith in, in the scripture that is, you know, delivered to her often via her father who has his very sort of, you know, black and white, very narrow idea of how to, you know, reach heaven. But I was also cautious not to have her necessarily meet other ghosts, for instance, and to sort of make a statement about what I think you know, the afterlife is like. I mean, I think Hannah's experience of, of her, her own afterlife in the in the years after her death is very specific to her and the way that she relates to the world. And I wanted to make sure that that was the case. In some ways, it's almost that she manufactures her own way of being in the world after she's died. Um, but, yeah, I think the you, grief- do introduce, you do introduce people who can feel her and even see her. The baby, for example, someone has mentioned that in one of the questions, the way the baby could see Hannah after, you know, and different um, animals, some of the Indigenous folk. There's, and, of, and, of course, Taya's mother, which in itself is a whole interesting, the, the Wendish yeah. woman and all of that sort of thing. I wanted to, it's funny that we use the word ghost, which I think is actually quite an inadequate word when it comes to how at least I perceive Hannah. I think of it much more as a spirit and that this is, that this isn't um, final. This, this spiritual existence for her isn't final at all. It's, it's temporary and it's very closely linked to her great love and devotion to Taya and that there is still some resolution that is clearly needed. And, you know, part of that might be her own realisation of the true nature of her feelings. It might be um, you know, simply waiting for Taya, but I always envisage that there is an ongoing, you know, different spiritual existences for the both of them, um, you know, beyond the, the, you know, what is on the page, beyond the book itself. So ghost, I think, is, you know, we have kind of these preconceived ideas of ghosts and the sort of immateriality, and I never really envisaged you know, Hannah like that at all. You know, I think she leads, you know, an incredibly physical existence in many ways after she's died. But it's certainly yeah, on a different spiritual plane. But, you know, I, there's a reason why I also included, you know, many characters who sense her or perceive her because I think there's many people in my own life who, you know, I know there are many people, many of my relations have seen ghosts sort of runs in the family and, you know, they don't like to talk about it. But there's all these other sort of experiences that I have no explanation for, but I absolutely you know, believe that they those were the experiences of these people that I love and who I trust. So, you know, it's a it's it's about exploring the mystery, right? It's not about having definitive answers about any of it. And I love that readers have these different interpretations because a book is only finished once a reader a reader finishes every book. 
you know, I can't, I can't do that. I only half write a book and then it's a reader who has to come in and apply their own understanding of the world or their own sense of curiosity or their own experiences to it. To, to. And that's why we love fiction. So just a couple of quick things. The chapter headings, are they in any shape, way or form, not, not the actual headings but the section, sorry, the section headings, are they supposed to represent the resurrection, the three days, that sort of thing? I mean, that was the most interesting device that you used. Yeah, I think because quite early in the book, Hannah talks about how this particular community allowed three days, which is true, it's what they did. And I thought that that worked very well then by the time I was sort of in the latter drafts and I was doing these sort of structural edits and it seemed to make sense that because that was relevant for Hannah within her lifetime, why not give it relevance? I'm not saying it's definitive and it's the only thing that happens, but for her and her experience, it comes back to sort of play a a role and you could you could argue that it's coincidence but you could also argue that it's simply I don't know the the ongoing ripple of of how she understood life when she was living and then there was a lot of discussion about the brown snake at the end so was there some sort of you know kind of a a biblical uh, or a spiritual reason for the snake itself or was it in fact just a reminder that this is part of the Australian landscape and they're everywhere and we should beware. (laughs) I think it's, um, you know, I wrote it absolutely knowing that there is, you know, a very powerful symbol in this biblical symbol in using a snake and particularly within the context of what happens in that chapter. But it was not necessarily what led me to pick it. I'm related to these communities of Germans on my my father's mother's side, on my grandmother's side, and I was thinking about my grandmother's life a lot. She she had a very interesting life um, and put up with a lot and was embodied, I guess, the values of these communities in many ways. She, you know, she had to put up bushfires and she had to protect her children in this very sort of rural landscape and I always remember her telling me about the snakes and I was thinking about the ways in which the the various dangers that present themselves to people who are in these situations and I kept coming back to the to what my grandmother told me about brown snakes and you know the constant presence of them everywhere here you know my daughter is terrified of snakes I have no idea why we've just sort of you know told her to be careful and if she sees one to you know go still and tell us but I think it's um yeah, it looms large, I guess, in the consciousness of people who live in a place like this where we see them all the time and, you know, they pose a very real danger. It's probably the greatest danger from the, the you know, the natural landscape or from nature that we they would face. So it felt it felt natural. It felt, I think anything else possibly would have been too dramatic. It, well, it was a surprise and dramatic ending, but it, it just beautifully concludes. I'm just in awe of your talent, Hannah. I really am. And I can't wait to see what's on the books next. What is on the books next, by the way? Um, well, at the moment, I've been doing sort of um, some revisions because Run Rabbit Run, this this film script is currently being uh, is currently shooting, as I said. So I'm still working on that at the moment. Um, although I think that's all wrapped up now. And and then I think it's probably travel related and depending on on what we're able to do and where we're about to go. I have it's never for me a matter of trying to find an idea. I have about four ideas for various books and projects on on various back burners in my mind. But I I think I, you know, I'm interested in in returning overseas as a as a setting. And you know, my concerns I think will always sort of remain similar. I, I think I'd really love to explore 
the various attitudes we have towards nature. I mean, I think it's a sign of the times too that I'm just, I'm preoccupied with nature and the natural world and the things that are happening with our climate. And I'm not saying I'm going to write a climate crisis novel, but I think it just is becoming a never bigger part of my approach to to writing and the kind of stories I want to tell. But yeah, I'd love to love to write Return Overseas, but we shall see what I'm able to do and what research I'm able to access. So. Well, I remember when you visited the shop in 2016, you and I talked about your upbringing and your childhood and your child's imagination, and you were outdoors a lot. I remember you telling me a lot about that. So I think you've always had an affinity with nature. This it, it's um, but you're absolutely right. It's it's sort of it's it's the topic really at the moment. And if we can keep bringing it into fiction and nonfiction, it, it increases and enhances our love and our understanding. Just mm-hmm. one last question, Hannah. It's nearly ten years, of course, since burial rights, mm-hmm. and I wonder now that you look back on the extraordinary international international success of that book particularly given it was your debut novel, so you, it was your first foray into the book publishing world, translated into more than 30 languages, won so many awards in Australia, the list goes on of its, its achievements. When you look back at burial rights, what are your, what, what are your thoughts just briefly? Oh, I just have an overwhelming sense of gratitude. I mean, that book, you know, I wrote that book with very little, you know, anticipation or expectation of, of publication let alone the reception it received uh, and but I'm, I'm hugely grateful to it because it allowed me to continue writing it gave me my writing career and you know I just I'm still pinching myself to be honest I know it's been 10 years but I still can't believe that 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 it happened and I still have the absolute privilege of hearing from readers who are reading very rights for the first time so it doesn't become old and I still I think remain just as obsessed with that case and with Agnes Magnus Dottir as I ever was. The book had so was so special to me for so many reasons beyond the, the manner in which it was received and published. So yeah, it will always be yeah, a, a huge, huge part of my life. And I and, um, and Phil, the film is still going ahead? Yeah, at this stage, yes. I, I've COVID, you know, really threw a lot of spanners in the film industry. Um, but yeah, at this stage, uh, it's still it's still happening. So you know, as soon as I know something, I'll I'll be sure to be singing it from the rooftop. So fingers crossed, because I know you know it's it's a difficult time. But um, but yeah, that's all all still happening. Well, we would love to see, we would love to see Agnes portrayed on on the big screen. She's a beautiful character. It's a wonderful story. As are all your three stories. Hannah, and all the many other ones that are in your head and on in your notebooks and not quite finished and <laughs> that to be a novel. I wish you every success for a terrific career. We are There's a generation of Australians now who are completely glued on to you and everything that you write, we have the pleasure of reading. So well, thank That's very kind, Corey. Thank you so much and thank you for having me tonight. It's a real privilege to be able to speak about depression. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping 
and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.